Colossians 1, 11 through 24. Um, I think this, today's passage will be a little different uh, in that it's more of a story uh, as opposed to more didactic passages that we've been encountering in this book so far. So I think it'll be a little bit of a uh, uh, different twist that might be interesting, I think. Uh, but let me read it for us, and then we'll pray one more time, and we'll go right, right into the time of the message together. Galatians 1, 11 through 24. For I would have it known, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with them 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. In what I'm writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia. And I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ, they only were hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. That is God's word. Uh, let's pray together before we go any further. Heavenly Father, we um, come before you in much need of your grace. We need your Holy Spirit to stir up our hearts so we can understand this text and hear your voice. God, apart from you, what shall we do in our lives? If you are not there, uh, we can't go anywhere. Our life will be full of darkness and, and doom. But because you are alive, because uh, you are here, because you speak to us even now through your word. We can have hope for the, for the next day, for tomorrow, for the future. So God, renew our hearts right now so that we may leave this place uh, more filled with uh, who you are, with your spirit, and for, with more hope uh, to live for you. Thank you for this time together. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
as always, uh, we're just going to walk through this passage together and hear what God has to say to us today. And three points to help us uh, to do that. And those are the testimony of God's grace. Second, uh, the authority of God's grace. And the third, the praise of God's grace. And the title for this message is The Journey of God's Grace. First, the testimony of God's grace. Here, right off the bat, in this passage, uh, Paul will state in these few verses uh, his thesis for today. It's, it's, it's nice because he is telling us right away what he's going to be talking about for the rest of the passage. He's not you know, keeping us in any suspense here. So let's hear what he is going to be talking about mainly in this passage, which is found in verses 11 and 12, where it says, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel, for I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through the revelation of Jesus Christ. Uh, you know, so far in this book of Galatians, uh, you know, Paul has been quite aggressively defending uh, his gospel and urging the Galatians to remain in the true gospel that he preaches and fight the false gospels. And now he is continuing uh, you know, the same argument in this passage. Uh, he's saying in this thesis statement that the gospel that he preaches is not of human origin, which is faulty. Rather, his gospel is of divine origin. In fact, he says he received it directly from Jesus Christ. So therefore, because this is of divine origin, the Galatians are to do well to stay with this gospel, lest they sell their soul to lies. And now, the rest of the passage that we will be looking at uh, we'll be unpacking and supporting this thesis statement. And that's what we're going to be looking at uh, for, for the rest of our time together. But interestingly, for his first supporting argument for his thesis, uh, he turns to his conversion story. So let's look what he will say about that. Verses 13 and 14, he says, For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people, so extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. Uh, this story of Paul and his conversion seems to be well known, as he says that, um, that you have already heard. So it's a well-known story. Uh, what that is, is this, that they know what a fanatic Paul used to be and how you know, he was one of the least likely uh, people who would be converted to become a Christian. And here's why. As a Pharisee, you know, Paul was very devoted to the traditions of his fathers, which are the Old Testament and the additional rules that the rabbis uh, taught people to obey. Uh, but that's not it. He was devoted, but he went actually beyond his peers, as he says here, and, and these standards. 
he was so extremely zealous for his religion, um, and he thought he was doing that for God, to the point that he went after the people whom he considered to be misguided and even blaspheming God by following Jesus as God's son. Paul, in his zeal, harassed these Christians and even had some of them killed. He was a monster, basically, if you read through the book of Acts. Uh, you can probably go as far as calling Paul a radicalized terrorist uh, who would do anything in the name of his religion. That's really what it was. And at that time, there really seemed to be no hope for this guy from the point of view of salvation, perhaps. But God, but God. That's what we see in verses 15 and 16. It says, But when he, God, who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. God saw Paul through the eyes of grace. The word grace, as you know, means undeserved favor. All that Paul deserved was what? Wrath and punishment from God for persecuting God's very people. That's all he deserved, but that's not what he got because of grace. And also this is grace in that God didn't wait for Paul to you know, get his acts together and be, become worthy to receive God's favor. No, he, God didn't wait for him. God initiated this whole story of salvation for Paul. That's grace. And while Paul was in the thick of blindness of his sins, you know, God worked in his heart. He caused him to be born again. And especially, you know, he broke him through the revelation of Jesus as we are about to see. Act of grace. So let's look. If you go to the next slide, uh, let me just read the whole passage for us from Acts 9. It's a, a narrative, narration of uh, how Paul became Christian. It says, But Saul, which is Hebrew name for Paul, uh, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. And the men who were traveling with them stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although he, his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. That's what happened. He revealed 
Jesus Christ to Saul, to Paul. And through this act of grace, God broke through the stubborn heart of sinner and did a miracle of changing uh, Paul from you know, being a persecutor into a preacher, you know, from uh, a violent man into a saint. And he especially did that to use him for the Gentiles, as we see here. And the point is, point is that though the reason why Paul is sharing his you know, salvation conversion story here uh, is that he wants to show, again, how his gospel, you remember the thesis? His gospel is really from God, not from human. How do we know that? Because only God can do what uh, he did in Paul. Humans cannot change a guy like him. He was impossible. He was hopeless. Okay, he was, in, in our terms, terrorist. How can we change him by any persuasion, any suave words? No. Only God could have done it. And, and his testimony, his conversion story, therefore, proves that the gospel really is of divine origin and is true gospel. That's the whole point. Likewise, kind of applying it to our lives too here, uh, conversion stories or uh, Christian testimonies uh, do have this effect of helping us uh, see the transformative, transformative power of the gospel. In other words, uh, these stories of individuals, how they came to Christ, uh, you know, they prove the gospel to be true, to be real. For example, a friend of mine uh, used to be a hopeless man. Uh, he was a drug dealer in Chicago, and later he got arrested by, while trying to rob a store. Uh, and and he went to jail, and you know he was waiting for his sentence, uh, you know, at, at this point. And during this time, you know, his parents, uh, who were you know, devout Christians, uh, they were just in tears, obviously, but they would always uh, walk up to his room while the door was closed. He would tell me how they would just pray for him, pray for this child that was so lost, that God would somehow change his heart because he was so gone in terms of, you know, the, the trajectory of his life. But then, on this random day, he told me that, you know, while thinking about, you know, how just meaningless his life was at a, like, subway station, he stumbled upon a, a sermon on, his, on the radio that he was listening to, and he heard the gospel. And the hope of the gospel flooded into his heart and he repented and became a Christ follower. And the rest of his history, really, he, uh, he was actually a, a seminary classmate who became a good friend to me and to Deb and you know, his now wife were good friends as well. And just a powerful story. Only God can change people like that. And I think of my life too probably not as dramatic, per se, as him or Paul, but uh, I think I was a very different person, too, you know, when I was a teenager, especially, uh, before I encountered the gospel. 
I think at the time, I felt really lost because I didn't know what the, the purpose of my life was. Um, I didn't know what I should be living for. You know, I had to study hard and get good jobs or whatever, but I kept asking, like, so what? <laughs> what is beyond that? What is really my real purpose of life? Another question or struggle that I had was, you know, my family definitely was unstable in many ways at the time. So I kept looking for love uh, and care, and I, I did that in romantic relationships uh, to, to fill that void. And to my um, disappointment, it didn't work. But then the gospel came when I was a senior in high school. And it came especially through uh, this passage that I can show you in the next slide, perhaps, um, in Corinthians 2 Corinthians 5, 14 through 15. He said, For the love of Christ controls us. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all. That those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. You see, this passage was answering my questions. What is my purpose? Live for God. Live for Christ who died for me. But even before the purpose, am I loved? And it says, I am fully loved. And I know that when I look at the cross. I am so loved. I don't need any earthly love to fill my void. And I know since then, God has been growing me and walking with me, and this has been my reality day by day. Our testimonies uh, do help us see the gospel to be real, not just concepts. So I want to encourage us, you know, for those of us who are Christ followers, um, to remember and perhaps even share your testimony with somebody this week. I think as you do that, it, will, it may bring back the gospel to your heart. It does that when you share your gospel and remember how God saved you. And to remind you again that we're not looking for specifically dramatic you know, conversion stories. It doesn't have to be that way. We're all different. We're all wired differently and different situations. Some of us, it's just very gradual and even hard to notice you know, different you know, points, but it's still there that God convicted your hearts to be sinners in need of you know, his grace, and God did save you, and you repented. And there is evidence of change, no matter how gradual that might be. Think about that and perhaps share that with somebody. And if you're not a Christ follower, can I encourage you also to um, just simply look back at your life, maybe all the way from, you know, when you're, you know, just a child, all the way from, you know, when you're really young, all, all the way to now. Just, just think about it. And I think as you do that, uh, you may see that your life is not just, it, it didn't just happen. As you examine different points of your life, I think you may see the sovereign 
and caring hand of God in every point of your life. That it's a miracle. Your life is a miracle. That God cared for you. He weaved your story and your lives. Um, and he sustained you through different joys and sorrows of different points of your life. And he carries you all the way here. And I hope you see that the point of doing all of that is that you may be drawn to closer, drawn closer to him and to his gospel. God bless your life if you look back and see the testimony of God's grace. Second, the authority of God's grace. Paul now continues on in his story, uh, but now it's past conversion. But we'll still see that his point is to prove that the gospel that he preaches is you know, real and true and of divine origin. So we see in verses 16 and 17, it says, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Now you see some geographical markers here. So follow with me. Uh, I think some of us might like this. Some of us might feel like, oh man, you know, why are we learning about these cities and names? Let's follow with me. Um, so once Paul encountered Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus, you know, he did not try to you know, indoctrinate himself. It's like, oh, I'm a, I'm a Christian now, so I gotta, you know, fill my mind and heart with uh, all this knowledge. That's not what he did, and that's the point of these two verses. He especially did not try to do that by acquainting with uh, the Jerusalem apostles, the, the, the superstars, so to speak, at the time of Christianity, the leaders of the church. Um, he did not uh, intentionally go to Jerusalem for that matter. And just by the way, as a, as a quick note, uh, you will hear a lot about Jerusalem um, in this passage and also throughout the letter. Uh, it's, it's likely because the, the false teachers of the, church, the Galatian churches were accusing Paul of having received the gospel, you know, not from God, but from these apostles. Uh, and then later on, you know, he deviated from these apostles and he gave um, you know, false gospel to the Galatians. That's what the teachers were saying. And in contrast, they were also claiming that uh, they are the, the true representatives of the apostles. So you got to listen to us over Paul. And that's why Paul is taking pains to talk about how he's not associated with the Jerusalem apostles. That, that's the point here. Uh, and that's why you see he is talking about Arabia and Damascus. So go to our next slide. Uh, here's a map here. I circle all the cities that you uh, find in this passage and see where the Arabia and Damascus are. Uh, just so you know, Arabia here refers to, not you know, Saudi Arabia or you know, anything like that, but Arabia here refers to the, the big region in the east of Israel, modern-day Israel. Um, and later in Galatians 4.25, Paul mentions Mount Sinai in Arabia. 
Um, so I think Paul went there to Arabia in the east, or rather southeast, uh, because he wanted to experience the, the journey of Israel. You know, Israelites, they stayed in the wilderness of, of you know, that region after they got out of Egypt. Uh, and, and also, Mount Sinai is significant for Israelites, right? You know, that, that's where Moses received the Ten Commandments and the law for the Israelites. I think Paul went there to be alone with God and to meditate on the meaning of the gospel that he preaches, that he, he, he received from Jesus and its relation to the Old Testament. But anyways, the point is this, again, that Damascus and Arabia are far from Jerusalem, as you can see. It's not very close to Jerusalem. Again, he's saying, I'm not associated with these apostles. I got my gospel from God, not from them. And 18 and 19, he says this. He says this. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remain with them 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. So now he mentions Jerusalem again. And here he finally you know, in the third year after his conversion, he finally goes up to Jerusalem. Why? To mainly be acquainted with, you know, apostles there. Because it's kind of like this, you know, like whenever you start a new job, you have to meet your co-workers, right? Uh, now that Paul is an apostle, he has to be friends with uh, these apostles. So that's why he went up there. And notice how he's so specific. He says he spent 15 days with Paul. Or, or Peter, and you ask, why? You know, like, like, why do you have to tell us that? Because as opposed to maybe spending months and years with somebody because you're working together, he only spent 15 days, only a little more than two weeks. And also, he also says about James, how he only saw him. He didn't even, you know, spend days with them. The point again is that he did not receive his gospel from these guys. These are good, good guys. You know, these are my core curse for the gospel, but my gospel does not come from uh, these guys. Cephas, by the way, is an uh, Aramaic name for uh, Peter. So he only saw these two apostles and only spent just a few encounters with them. And then, lastly, he drops the mic. Verse 20, he says, In what I'm writing to you before God, I do not lie. <laughs> uh, here, he's taking a solemn oath, basically, uh, as if he's at a you know, court trial. It's a Roman custom. You know, Romans viewed an oath like this as like a final word or a final statement in a, in a trial. So I think Paul is envisioning himself to be in this trial with um, uh, these false teachers, uh, his opponents, and he's delivering you know, this final summary statement of his position. And he's saying, I'm dead serious. I, I take my oath to God. These are all true statements. Now you decide. And that's what Paul is doing here. Paul is telling the truth that his gospel really is from God, not from these you know, 
big names or apostles. The gospel of Paul is pure and uncorrupted in that regard. Let me illustrate this way. Uh, I really appreciate, um, I think we're a fun church, aren't we? Okay. We are. We are. Let's believe that, okay? I was <laughs> no, just kidding. Um, I think I really appreciate all the funds that we have, and I think whenever we have any events, we have you know, fun icebreaker games, and I think one game, I think there's one sort of a pattern, one kind of game that we tend to play a lot, which is um, some variations of uh, the telephone game, right? Meaning that uh, you know, we line up, and there are like several people, at least like four or five people, and uh, the first person has an an like an original answer, and he or she has to relay or explain that answer um, either by words or you know pictures or things like like, like Pictionary, right? Um, so that's that's what we do many times, and I appreciate that game because it's fun. Um, but Again, that's how it goes. You know, it starts from the, the first person and then it goes to the, the final person who has to guess you know, what, what the original answer was. And it's a lot of fun because often you get to see the, 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 the final answer is really off from the, the original answer. I think this one time uh, when we were playing something like that, uh, I think the, the, the original answer was panda. I think we kind of play like a Pictionary, and then like the final answer was like wild wildflower. I don't know how that happened, but you get the point. You know that that's the fun of the game. I think that's basically um, what the false teachers were claiming about Paul. You see, you know they were saying that the original answer of the gospel was passed down from person to person, from an apostle to another, and all the way to Paul who then passed another corrupted form of the original answer uh, so that the final answer was really off. The Galatians got, you know, wrong gospel. That's, that was their claim. And to that, you know, Paul is saying, and he's explaining that that's not the case. The fact of the matter is that the final answer that the Galatians got is identical to the original answer because there was no line. It was directly from Jesus to Paul. There was no, you know, game. He only got it directly from Jesus. Galatians was not, you know, defrauded in that regard. He got the true God. They got the true gospel. And if you think about it, this is important. That's why. It's significant that the Bible that we have in our hand, that it's a written document, as opposed to oral tradition. I mean, a lot of religions and a lot of traditions are, you know, by words of mouth, right? And we know that. But think about it. If our doctrines were, you know, transmitted orally, then it's, it's really basically the telephone game, Right? You know, there, it can include a lot of embellishment, a lot of distortions to the original doctrines, and that's not very encouraging. How can you, how can we really, really trust that that what we have is the original doctrines? 
Instead, we see the authors of the Bible, you know, for example, the apostles like Paul, you know, who were eyewitnesses of Jesus. You know, they didn't pass these down, but they wrote them down. What they heard and saw, what they received from Jesus directly. And not only that, the Bible has many copies, many scribal copies throughout centuries, over 5,000 at least. And so that we can compare these copies to sort out any you know, minor errors from you know, copying and scribing. And we can get to the original version of what the apostles wrote. And the scholars agree that the Bible that we have right now is extremely close to the original manuscripts with very minor you know, scribal, uh, scribal discrepancies that do not really affect our core doctrines. And that's why we use the word inerrancy of the Bible because the, the original copies of the Bible is, is without error. And therefore, the result is that we can trust the Bible that we have to be the word of God directly delivered by the eyewitnesses. Not by telephone game, but direct account of God. That's telling. That's important for Christian life. And I think how we can be applying these principles right now before we go on is is this. I think two things. First, I think what this means is you know, each of us must read and wrestle with the Bible ourselves as opposed to relying on sermons or, you know, even books as the main source of the intake of God's word. You see what I mean? Like, to be sure, the sermons and books are important. Those are good tools for us to understand and and clarify the meanings and applications of the Bible. But, if in your life that's the only source of hearing God's word, I can tell you that inevitably your spiritual life will suffer in the end because, you know, again, you're playing telephone game with God's word. You're hearing it through somebody as opposed to you wrestling with God's word yourself. The second way we can apply this principle is that your faith has to be your own. Meaning, if you grew up in church, if you grew up in a believing home, that's a huge blessing. You probably heard a lot of great things about the Bible and Christian life from your pastors or from your parents. Those are good things. But, you know, until you own up to your own faith and it becomes your faith, it is a telephone game. It is you're believing in somebody that you heard from somebody else. Now is a good time. We're young in, in our journey in many ways, and it's a good time for us to really own up to our faith and make it, making it ours and hear God's word um, you know, firsthand. So Paul's words and the Bible as a whole is a direct revelation from God, and that's a great thing for Christians. The authority of God's grace. And third and last, the praise of God's grace. Verse 21. Now we're in the last leg of this travelogue. The last stop 
is these two regions. Verse 21, it says, Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia. Map again. So, you see the Cilicia and uh, Syria there. Um, according to Acts 9, you know, after the Jerusalem trip that we looked at earlier, you know, Paul was sent to Tarsus, uh, which is you know, in the region of Cilicia, which is modern-day Turkey. And Tarsus was actually Paul's hometown. He's, called, he's uh, known as Paul or Saul of Tarsus. And he stayed there for about eight years doing you know, various things. And then in Acts 11, uh, we see Paul afterwards joined the church in Antioch in the region of Syria. You see that too. And look, look how far these are from Jerusalem. You see the point. He didn't get his gospel from Jerusalem. And now, verse 22, this makes sense then. And he says, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. Meaning, because I'm, you know, many distances away from Judea or Jerusalem, so the believers there, of course, didn't know me personally. That's what it's saying here. But then, crucially, they knew of me. They didn't know me personally, but they knew of my story. And he concludes his passage in this way. He says, they only were hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. Meaning, even though they didn't know Paul personally, but they knew how drastic his change was, how he was this monster, but now he is a preacher of God's word preacher of the gospel that he was trying to destroy. And when they saw that, they were overjoyed and they praised who? They praised God because only God can do this. You know, it's like if a doctor performs a difficult surgery and you know, the person is healed, then of course people around them uh, will you know, give credit to the doctor and they also will feel comfortable interesting themselves to that doctor if they have to get the surgery too in the, in the future. Just like that, the, the believers of Judea, they saw the divine doctor, God, not only healing Paul, but in fact resurrecting Paul from the dead life of Judaism into a new um, dramatic life that he is in right now. And they are praising God. They're giving God all the credit. And here's what that means, and, and I'll end with this. What it means is that when we live by God's grace in our lives, the result is people around us will praise God because of us. And they'll be encouraged to entrust themselves to this divine healer, God. And that's a cool thing. We're basically God's instrument of his praise. Because of us, God, God is praised. And we are a blessing to other people. But then also conversely, what, they, what this means is that if we choose to live by our own strength, 
if we do not depend on God's grace, then we will actually hinder people from you know, seeing and praising God. You see the different results there. If you live by grace, people praise God. If you live by your own strength, people won't. The question is, do you live by God's grace? And do people praise God when they see you? And for me, uh, let me just be really honest with you, and I'm at this point rebuking myself here as I'm sharing this. Do I live by God's grace? Um, temperamentally, uh, some of you know that I'm a huge planner and I'm a perfectionist. I love making to-do lists. I, I love it. Like, I, I, I'll do it at any moment. I, I love it. I just cannot do, do anything without any plan. That's, that's not me. So I, I love doing that every single day, every single morning. I, I want to have like this, you know, to-do list, and I want to accomplish these things. And I get this exhilaration when I, you know, at the end of the day, I accomplished all the things I want to accomplish. I, I love it. And I get frustrated when, you know, I cannot... Uh, or I failed at, you know, accomplishing even one of them. I'm crazy. <laughs> I'm like that, really. But the problem you see with this system of my life is that there's no room for God's grace, right? All the glory and credit will go to me because it's about my plan and my system and how much I accomplish according to my plan. And God graciously has been growing me in this area over the years. And let me tell you, you know, what, what's happening these days in my life. I think, you know, most recently, I think the big, most significant change about my life is that I became a parent, especially a parent of two children. And here, here's how things go normally. You know, I would, you know, gloriously write down all my plans for the day. And I sit down. That's when Natalie starts crying. And then, you know, Deb would be, like, having meetings, so she cannot take care of her, so I would have to run to her. And there goes my plan for that hour. And then I would get a call from Seth's daycare saying that he's not feeling well. What does that mean? I have to go pick him up. What that means is that I scratch literally the whole day of my plan. And I pick him up and I come back home and I spend the whole day with him and take care of him and do other things that needs to be done. And humanly speaking, you know, these are frustrating things because again, my, I'm wired to have planned and accomplish my plans. But I got to realize, um, you know, over the years that these are actually moments of God's grace. Why? Because these times, these change of plans push me to rely on God, <laughs> rely on God's grace as opposed to my plan and my device. And when I do get to be faithful to the things I need to be faithful to, then the credit goes to God because despite these changes and despite the limitations that I have, I was somehow able to accomplish these things and, you know, be, was able to be faithful to these things 
And to clarify, being faithful does not mean that I would be perfect or I'll be successful, per se. Because oftentimes I realize that being faithful means I have to be failing in certain things and I have to be forsaking my standards a lot. Uh, because if I do not forsake them, then I'll be glorifying myself and I'll be um, trying to be perfect and God is not glorified. But I realize that that's okay. It's okay to be failing. <laughs> I don't have to be perfect because God is a sovereign one. I'm not. And because of that, God is glorified and Aiden is diminished. And amen to that. God is glorified when I'm down. But best of all, best of all this is this, that over the years, I see my character is growing. Before, I have to, you know, make sure that everything is perfect, but over the years, I realized, oh, I can let things go. <laughs> and I, I can be patient. I can be, you know, humble about my plans. What that means is God's grace accomplishes things in my life that I cannot accomplish, which is Christ-like character. And all glory to God when you see in me any evidence of those, those graces, evidence of humility and anything that you see that is like Christ. All glory to God. Not my plan. And I can tell you that I'm still struggling. <laughs> I'm still human, obviously. Every day is a struggle, but I'm saying that God's grace carries me through. And that's life. That's life. So let me ask you in closing, you know, what would it mean for you then to live by God's grace every single day? You know, what will you have to forego about your life in order to depend on God? And how would you respond when God graciously interrupts your plans? Let us live by God's grace. As we also see how God has been gracious as we look at our testimony as well. Let's pray together. Let's spend some time before we uh, respond in prayer. Um, God's grace. If God is not gracious, if God is like us, measuring things based on our performance, how well we do things, how well we do on our exams or you know projects, um, in our in our jobs, um, how we are doing relationally with our friends or coworkers. If those are the measures, just imagine how miserable our life would be. But if the ultimate measure is God's grace, it's about God's initiative, and He loves us, not based on what we do or our performance. But He loves us based on Himself. Imagine what kind of freedom that we would 
live with in our lives. That God loves me literally unconditionally. And that is the beauty of the gospel. That is what God's grace does. And all praise go to God. And that's a good thing. Our pride might say that's a terrible thing. I want to be elevated. But hey, how, how long does satisfaction that comes from your pride last? It makes us miserable. When God is elevated, we're happy. It's all by His grace. So let's come together, everyone. Just come before God who is gracious. Who sees us through the eyes of grace. And let's rest in Him and get, get our hearts ready to praise Him through the song that we'll be singing in a moment. Let's pray together.